Hello and welcome to GP Works, the podcast about and for general practice from the Irish College of General Practitioners. I'm Mark O'Kelly and I'm out in Blackrock Hospice today in County Dublin. And in this podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Paul Gregan. He's a GP principal in Dean's Grange in Dublin and a specialist consultant in palliative care medicine in the Blackrock Hospice and in St. Michael's in Dunleary. And today we'll be talking about how he balances a dual role as a half-time GP and a half-time palliative care consultant and the palliative approach to the breathless patient, including how we can prove our care of these patients within the community by identifying and working with the patients that may benefit from a palliative approach to their care. So welcome to GP Works, Paul, and thanks very much for uh, having me in to have a chat with you. Thanks, Mark. First question um, up really is, I'd ask you to tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, your life as a GP, and then as a half-time specialist in palliative care, and maybe a little bit about how it evolved. Well, Mark, I uh, came through general practice training back in the uh, early 90s and um, finished up in Scotland, came back here. At the time, there wasn't really much happening in general practice, very hard to get a job, believe it or not, and um, a palliative care job came up, and I drifted into that as a locum SHO, and 24 or 5 years later, I'm still in palliative medicine. Um, I initially uh, enjoyed it because the skills required for palliative medicine are uh, very similar to what's required as a GP. They're very patient-centred, and you need uh, a good listening ear, um, and those qualities uh, um, stand to you from general practice and I just transport those into palliative care. Palliative care has changed hugely in the time I've been in it and um, when I came into it they were setting up the um, training schemes uh, and I went into full-time training in palliative medicine and finished that in 2001 and since then uh, came back to half-time general practice primarily because I missed it and also because I found that the variety of general practice balanced out the, um, I suppose, emotional weight of palliative care and having to deal with that. And I thought as a career, uh, it might be good to have a little bit of something else. So um, so I embarked on that and um, palliative medicine uh, has been developing rapidly over the last 20 years. Um, and Blackrock Hospice was built. It happened to be built down the road from uh, a general practice that I had a, had a half-time partnership in, uh, and I developed a half-time palliative care post here. Uh, so I now have a, an unusual position as half-time GP, half-time uh, consultant, where I do my ward runs in the morning and my surgery in the afternoon. Um, I didn't anticipate the volume of work, of, of paperwork that would come along, and I think general practice um, has developed hugely uh, in, in the wrong direction in paperwork. We are enormously burdened by that. I see a big change in that in 20 years, but also big advances in primary care, particularly IT and how we manage IT, and that is way ahead of our hospital and, and, uh, and hospice systems. Um, so do you find then the balance, if, you, if you're working between two places, the balance of that paperwork, is that, that difficult to get through when you're being pulled between... Yeah, I think if you work two, two halves of two jobs, you tend to work the harder two halves of both of those jobs. And so you, the paperwork is quite a, an onerous uh, thing. I have good support here in the hospice with a, an excellent colleague uh, full-time, and I have good support in general practice from excellent colleagues there. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. Um, but I think what's happening in palliative care is that it has moved from really primarily a cancer-based um, uh, area to now... Uh, uh, looking at end-stage disease of all varieties, and that includes uh, heart failure, COPD, 
um, autoimmune disease and end-stage neurological disease along with advancing cancers. So it's become a much more wider spectrum and that is requiring a lot more time and energy um, and expansion of services, um, which is, is changing things, definitely. And that brings me nicely on to my, my next question, which is really, I, I think in general practice we're now very good at identifying patients who've been diagnosed with cancer that can, that can benefit from specialist palliative care input. And I think uh, we're better at referring those patients and having those conversations with those patients. I do wonder whether, when it comes to the breathless patient, how good we are at identifying the breathless patient. And I think there's a lot of challenges with that but those who will benefit from a palliative approach to their care. And it's very difficult actually to pick those people out because if you look at the trajectory of, of, of uh, decline in people with malignancy, uh, it's very often um, fairly accurately predictable as to when they're going to require palliative care services, um, um, particularly as they decline. The, 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 the curves, if you, if you plot their descent on a curve, it's much more easily um, uh, from a, a non-malignant point of view, um, very often it's punctuated by uh, um, declines, so you get an exacerbation of COPD and you never quite get back to where you started, so you're, you get a stepwise um, uh, uh, reduction in function, but it's punctuated at that point in a very uh, steep decline from which you may or may not recover. So planning palliative care around COPD is very difficult and often in the initial stages palliative care is useful around the acute events but needs to be able to withdraw from the chronicity um, uh, especially if there's not much happening and the patient is back to a stable uh, point. So I think palliative care is trying to learn how to move in and out in in, uh, chronic disease. How you, uh, uh, you're quite right, it's very difficult to pick out people who uh, are breathless very often they'll come into you as a GP and they deny they're breathless I saw a lady yesterday gasping in my surgery an extremely hot day very difficult for her to breathe um, denying she was breathless and she was obviously breathless so people learn to live with their breathlessness and very often they don't realise how sick they are or else they hide it from you as a GP I think um, there's a few triggers that would make you think about referring and certainly somebody who is uh, not coping at home. If they're manage, if they're if they're on their own, you might be more uh, inclined to to refer them earlier with uh, um, advanced disease. But somebody who's breathless at rest or on minimal exertion, you certainly should be looking at uh, referring those uh, people with documented um, uh, FEVs of less than thirty percent. Um, you should be looking at referring, and even less than fifty percent with uh, symptoms. Uh, they should be referred. I think also people who are regular attenders at hospitals, so frequent admissions, certainly more than three in a year, sometimes two a year is enough to trigger uh, a referral. And um, also then uh, if you feel they would benefit from breathlessness management um, from physios and OTs, sometimes the hospital is very useful for that in end-stage disease. Yeah, indeed, I, I know I've had a couple of patients myself recently. There's a pilot running in the Harold's Cross Hospice. Uh, they're running a breathlessness clinic there. And I know I've had two patients who uh, were really struggling with anxiety and managing their breathlessness who've had huge benefits from that and acceptance of, of where they are with their disease status um, at the moment, both of whom are suffering with both COPD and heart failure. Can I ask you a little bit um, then about the treatment options um, for the for the 
end-stage patients, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological. I know we've mentioned the breathlessness clinic there, but you might just take us through those separately for, for the COPD or the, the heart failure patient. So I think for breathlessness, um, um, I think you know if you have advanced cancer, uh, often oncology treatments will make you feel worse before you feel better. But in heart failure and in COPD, good heart failure management, good respiratory management of COPD makes you feel better, quite apart from the palliative care part of that. So we really value our partnerships with respiratory medicine and with cardiology and also with general practice to manage the respiratory and cardiological side of that. So I often don't get involved in working out the doses of inhalers, the doses of steroids, the, you know, uh, um, the doses of diuretics or uh, who goes on what cardiologic medications. But I will certainly be looking at medications that, are, that we can add to that that make people feel better. And primarily the medications we use for breathlessness are opioids. And primarily that is now morphine. That seems to be uh, out on its own as an opioid in terms of usefulness. And so uh, good use of opioid in end-stage disease can make a very significant difference to somebody's breathlessness. And the other main thing that, we, that I try to add to every patient who's breathless is the use of a handheld fan. That, that is nearly as good as the use of an opioid. And you can get a 1 out of 10 improvement on a breathlessness scale from adding morphine and a 1 out of 10 uh, almost from using uh, a fan. And that's a huge difference to somebody's um, sensation of breathlessness. And just for people out there who, who, who might be a little bit more nervous about using morphine for breathlessness, is there a particular type of morphine that you would use initially? And, and indeed, what kind of doses would you start a patient on? So in somebody who's opioid naive, in other words, they're not on opioids for any other reason. So, for example, somebody with lung cancer might be on an opioid and before you arrive at the breathlessness sure. and things. But if they've never been on an opioid, you're going to use morphine, you would probably use short-acting morphine and I would, I would recommend Oromorph at 2.5 milligrams uh, every four hours up to five times a day. That would be a sort of standard opening dose. Um, you can use up to a total of 30 milligrams of morphine with safety. So uh, that would be five milligrams five times a day. Um, you'd be well within a safety boundary. The main problems you'll have with opioids would be people with renal impairment. So often in heart failure, there's a um, coexisting renal uh, impairment. And because the metabolites of morphine accumulate in renal failure, they get a little more toxic or drowsy, hallucinate, those things if you have uh, a renal impairment. But if you don't have that uh, then, and your kidneys are in reasonable functioning order, then you, you can metabolize morphine quite well, so it's quite good. The evidence doesn't seem to be, and initially it did seem to be, that uh, you could use other opioids like oxycodone, paladone, butrans, fentanyl for, um, for breathlessness. It doesn't seem to be as uh, anywhere near as strong as morphine. The recent evidence, uh, which is due to be published, is suggesting that morphine is out on its own. So I now use morphine as the main um, uh, uh, palliative med uh, uh, medicine for uh, breathlessness. Um, you can use the long-acting, that's the MST, um, as opposed to the short-acting, and sometimes for compliance that's easier. I'll often put them on to 2.5 milligrams, and if they're stable on that, I might put them on 5 BD of MST instead, um, and use 2.5 as an as required dose after that. Um, the advantage of that is that it'll cover you all day and all night. 
And then in terms of the non-pharmacological options, you talked about the FAN, but um, is there, I mean, we've seen the pilot of the breathlessness clinic um, started in Harvest Cross Hospice. Is this something you think that will roll out and become definitely, more prevalent? Definitely, and we do do a, a, a breathlessness clinic here as well. Um, it is, uh, they're usually run by physios and OTs and uh, um, specialist nurses uh, with some input from ourselves. Um, but it's a multidisciplinary approach to the management of breathlessness. You referred to uh, the sensation of panic and edge that people feel with breathlessness. And palliative care, from its uh, start, has been around holistic medicine, physical, psychological, social and spiritual dimensions of care. And if you just concentrate on, on the physical side of it and miss the psychological and social pieces, um, then, then that makes a, uh, you're not making as big a difference. So actually attending and the, and the reassurance you get from attending um, clinics uh, makes a big difference. And that also happens in general practice. The reassurance people get from you as a person, um, as opposed to the medicines you're giving, are nearly as important. You know? um, and, and typically, how many visits would the patient have in breathlessness? Uh, probably about three okay. um, uh, for breathlessness management. And then um, we will either link them with the uh, home care team here, where they have an ongoing uh, link with us, and we have connections now with, with respiratory outreach. And here at Blackrock Hospice, we meet once a month with the respiratory outreach team uh, from St. Michael's and St. Vincent's, and we go through a list of maybe 20, 25 patients with uh, end-stage COPD. Um, and that kind of multidisciplinary um, way of doing things is, uh, is, is the future, most definitely. Absolutely. And then just the last question then for you, really to sum up, um, which I think is one of the hardest parts in general practice, is after we've identified patients um, who are breathless and may benefit from palliative care, do you have any tips as to how to approach that with the patient? I think it's always easy when there's a cancer diagnosis to approach palliative care, uh, but it can be more difficult and time-consuming um, in the general practice consult. And, and if there's any ways you'd suggest we can we can introduce that as a conversation with the patient. I think I think you're right about time. That's a hugely difficult thing in general practice. We have whatever it is, 15 minutes for your consultation. Trying to squeeze that in uh, is very difficult. I don't think I would do that in the midst of an exacerbation. The time to do it is not, you know, as you're calling the ambulance or referring someone to hospital. By the way, let's have a discussion about care. I think the time to do that is when they're between exacerbations and when you're seeing a pattern of two or three admissions in a year. Uh, it might be worth calling them in. You know, you approaching them mm -hmm. and saying, could you come in for a discussion around your breathing? Uh, and maybe one or two of your family as well, and, and sit down and have a discussion about where this is, and uh, a very real discussion. It's a sensitive thing because it's a negotiation. A lot of patients don't want to go there, so you have to feel your way on that. Um, but as a rule, it is a good idea to get their feelings on what they want, um, almost to formulate an advanced care plan as well. Do you want to keep going in and out of hospital? Is that what you want? Um, a lot of patients do. Um, and would a link with palliative care uh, be helpful, mainly around support for your breathing. Often it's the, it's the introduction of opioids, um, that's sometimes a handy way to... Um, sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, some GPs are confident enough to initiate uh, opioids, but um, it's often a handy way, you know, to uh, introduce the idea of palliative care, that uh, it's around controlling your symptoms and trying to make your breathlessness better, because we can't, because you can't reverse the disease, you're trying to just reverse their sensation of breathlessness, which is a bit akin to um, um, pain management. You're trying, you can't, 
you can't fix a broken leg by general practice, but you can make that pain better. And the same in, you know, you have something you can't fix, uh, even with surgery, in, in, in COPD, and, uh, but you can make their sensation of breathlessness easier. And that's true palliation. Absolutely. And I think hopefully there'll be an opportunity as, as the structured care rolls out for COPD and, and indeed heart failure that we might um, find a little bit more time uh, to be able to ask those questions. Very much hope so. So that's it from GP Works for this episode. A big thank you to Dr. Paul Gregan for joining us in this podcast. hope you like GP Works and do remember there are more episodes on our SoundCloud channel and on iTunes. Do subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss out and let your colleagues know. I'm Marco Kelly and thank you for listening.